For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. Uh, hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by Jeremy Corbyn. How are you doing, Jez? Great to see you, Derek. I hope you're well and fantastic to be on it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's nice to see you as well. What, what's, what, what's been happening with yourself? How's the, the Peace and Justice project going? Well, we've had a uh, obviously busy time. We've got about 50,000 people signed up for the project and that number is growing and uh, that's what sustains us. And the priority areas we're looking at for the coming year are a question of media ownership and media control and the need for a Leveson 2 inquiry to take place. And so we're also linking that to a campaign on miscarriages of justice, which are often linked, because you think, think through Hillsborough, all the horrors that went with it, the way in which the Sun and other media reported it, and the damage that did for the search for truth and justice by the uh, Hillsborough campaign. Ditto Shrewsbury 24, and uh, ditto questions of what happened in the miners' strike in Scotland and elsewhere, and the blacklisting of people in that. So that's the kind of area we're looking at. And we're also working on... um, areas of international solidarity as well and um, I was in Mexico over Christmas with Lara my wife who is from Mexico she was there for much longer than me and um, we're doing uh, international solidarity work with them in their quest for human rights and justice and we had a very well it was a learning process but a very sad meeting with an old friend of mine in Cenas who's the justice minister who is trying to look into human rights abuses in the past including the disappearance of 43 students five years ago seven years ago and um, they've only found three bodies 40 bodies are still missing um, and they're just finding hundreds and hundreds of unmarked graves of Guatemalan women who are trying to migrate through Mexico and he is obviously doing his very best to try and bring about closure for families but also create security for the future so it's it was a learning lesson of what the horrors of life that some people face when uh, corruption and violence take over it's, it's a heartbreaking situation isn't it it, it sounds like you're doing, doing some fantastic work there as well you, you touched yeah. on the, the Hillsborough uh, stuff there did, did you watch the recent programs on ITV amazing and um, well Maxine Peak is something else, isn't she? She done she done a fantastic job in that. You know, she she's just she's a brilliant great, actress. Great, great friend and um and great supporter of her work. And she uh, doesn't just um act brilliantly, which she obviously does, but she totally believes in what she's doing, and it, that's what comes across. And she's a very important trustee of the working class movement library in Manchester, in Salford, and um, she and I went there uh, last year. Um, She invited me to go there. I was doing an event on media in Manchester, so we went to the Working Class Library first, and I donated a um, a booklet to them, and you'll like this. The booklet was sent to me by um, a supporter in the country, 
and it was the original version, the original booklet of Keir Hart on returning from his world tour in 1907, where they had a sort of welcome home rally for him in the Albert Hall. And this was the official program, beautifully prepared. And they didn't mess about. It started at 6.30, introductory speeches, 45 minutes, and then an hour for this, an hour for that, an hour for the other. And Keir Hardy was given an hour and a half. And then there was a follow-up and the whole thing must have finished about 11.30. So you imagine, like, there's a few thousand people there. And um, this was the original of it. So I, I was, it was a wonderful gift to be given to me. But I don't believe I should hold those things in my study. They should be for everybody. So I donated it to Working Class Library. So it's there as part of the archives. So if you're ever looking for Keir Hardy's Welcome Home in 1907, it's there. I'm just annoyed that his, his welcome home was in was in London and it wasn't just up the road from us. Well, I, I thought you'd say that, and you're of course quite right. That um, I mean, Keir Hardy's life was so incredible, really. I mean, he was a a child miner, wasn't he? A child labourer who had no real formal education, and he just picked things up from church and school and so on, and joined the temperance movement, which probably taught him quite a lot, and then um, ended up as the first Labour MP, leader of the party, and then basically when he died, he was a very sad and felt broken because of his opposition to the First World War, and um, his... Um, isolation from so many former comrades who decided to support the carnage of the first world war but you know what who's remembered absolutely those that uh, waved a flag and rushed into that terrible conflict or those that like Keir Hardy and Fenner Brockway and others that stood back and I, I think Keir's message stands the test of time I've also read um last year the end of the back end of the year a lovely book on the life of James Connolly. There's a book been produced of James Connolly's life, the, all of those that were executed after the Easter Rising. <coughs> There's a book been written on each of them, and I was given the book on James Connolly um, by Tom Lawless, and I, I've read the book. And it's absolutely fascinating. Born in Edinburgh, moved to Edinburgh, yeah. went to America, went to Canada, um, went on a train tour of the whole of the United States in um, about 1910 or thereabouts, um, and then eventually came back to Dublin and, um, and then got involved in the Easter Rising through the uh, Irish Transport and General Workers Union and then was executed in uh, 1916. But what a life. And again, somebody with no resources of his own, lived his total life in poverty, self-taught in every way. And you read his writings and the letters just before he died, and you realise what an incredible brain this man had and what an incredible vision he had. And then you sort of think, well, how many more poverty-stricken young people in that period didn't have the luck, chances, whatever, of Connolly and Hardy, um, how much they could have contributed. And poverty is such a waste of human resources. And we all lose. 
I think the, the real sad time. thing about this is, you know, we, we, we you use your podcast studio for young people to come in and express themselves. I think that's fantastic because young people are naturally imaginative and actually naturally inclusive. We just put them into boxes too often. I think I think the real sad thing about that is, you know, we, we speak about the people like Keir Hardy and, and James Connolly and, you know, decades later, you know, you've still got the same intrinsic problems. You know, it's, it's poverty and inequality that's plaguing society. I'm in, um, going to Derry next week. I'm doing uh, an ev events around the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday and um, visiting lots of places and so on. We're going next weekend to Derry. I'm absolutely looking forward to that because it is about the forward-looking um, Irish identity, but also socialism and social justice. And this is where Connolly was so exceptional because he, yes, he was a nationalist. Yes, he was an Irish nationalist. He, and he didn't shy away from that at all. But he also wanted a socialist Ireland in order that um, he didn't just um, wave a flag over landowning inequality. He waved a flag over equality and justice and real rights for all of the people. I think that's so pertinent just now, you know, and, and you know, we won't go into each other's uh, opinions on Scottish independence or, or even what's happening in Westminster. But I think you know, just just to take the, the recent things that are, are happening, you know, down your way at the moment. And you look at the Labour Party, and you, and you might not want to talk out of tongue here, but it's almost like I, I see people deflecting from the Tories to Labour. And for me, for real change in, in Britain and across the United Kingdom, it has to be socialist change, you know. And by by replacing politicians from the, the right and, and putting them into the Labour Party, it's not going to get that change that we so need to change society you, you might win elections but you're not going to you know change the lives of so many working class people across scotland england ireland and Wales. Absolutely. mobilize people in order that they can be excited at the possibilities of what changes we could bring about yeah the changes in education but also the changes in the culture of our society the culture of education which is particularly in England, but to some extent also in Scotland and Wales, is actually ultra-competitive. League tables of schools and things like that are completely damaging and to everything about education. Um, but if you sort of point to people and say, well, actually, every young person can achieve something, everybody must be included, you then take that principle into society. It becomes exciting. But if all we're prepared to do is say, well, we are pro-business, we are pro-market economics, and we're not going to fundamentally redistribute power and wealth, where's the excitement on that? Where's the excitement on that? There has to be some alternative, and uh, that is what we have to work on. And so my energies are put into trying to educate and enthuse people to get involved. To, to me, I, I was at this demonstration against the police bill last um, Saturday, and um, everything that could be said about the police bill had, had already been said. So I decided to, yes, of course, oppose the police bill and all its um, uh, restrictions, but also to go further. And I said, look, we're all here because we believe in something different because we live in, live in a better world. I said, I don't want to be forever defending the National Health Service. I want to be accepting the National Health Service is here for all time and is publicly run and publicly owned and publicly accountable, and a national care service. So that fear of getting old and needing care and not getting it, 
or the fear of um, people of, of your age having to pay for their parents' care when it, when it comes along. And so if you start to campaign for something and you win, that's how you bring about change. You see, remember Hardy, what he was doing when he was stood for election first in Scotland, first thing he said was end landlordism and make housing a right. And later, John Wheatley, one of the Red Clydesiders, became Minister of Housing. And one of the few successes of the first Labour government, 1923-24, was housing. Who was the minister? John Wheatley. You know, it's. It, 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 I just think it's, it's amazing that it's still the same issues that, that we're facing today. And, you know, you, you've been at the forefront of politics in the United Kingdom for a number of years now. I won't, I won't say it because it will make you feel old, but... Uh, what do you think we could have done differently? I mean, you, you must be sitting looking at the news in the past couple of weeks and thinking, you know, if, if things had been slightly different, how different would be would be right now? Well, obviously, I think about it a lot, and um, I realised that when I was elected leader of the party, I was in a isolated position within the parliamentary Labour Party and parliamentary system and within much of the structures of the Labour Party, yet there was also a massive membership that was wonderful and supportive. My strategy was not to be an autocrat, but to be a Democrat and to enhance and strengthen democracy in policy making and selections and elections and so on within the party. We didn't achieve everything that I wanted to in the time frame that we'd set ourselves. The obstructions were huge. I was very keen to change the economic thinking of the party, which certainly did. To me, that was the key thing. We challenged the idea of austerity economics and the idea that you get through a crisis by hitting the worst off in society through austerity. So that was successful. What could we have done different? The relationship with the media was always going to be difficult. I recognise that. And um, we spent an awful lot of time dealing with um, really unfair attacks on me particularly, but also on other people. And sometimes it felt like we were kind of under siege and I was personally, literally under siege with um, very hostile journalists hanging around outside my house all day and every day. Um, so I couldn't actually go out quite a lot. I just couldn't leave the house um, without being uh, accosted by these people, which, I mean, I take it, obviously, it's part and parcel of the position, but it's not a very nice position to be in. But um, I felt that uh, we were speaking out for those who had been ignored and forgotten in society. We were trying to give voice to them. And... Um, could we have done things differently? Obviously, there's many, many choices we've made all along the way and lots of things. Could they have been different? Of course they could. Would it have had a different result? Well, who knows? That That's a debate that gone on forever. Brexit was the real problem. Um, there wasn't an easy answer to it in that um, Labour support across the country was um, probably 60-40 in favour of Remain in the EU roughly speaking, um, much higher proportion than that within the Parliamentary Labour Party. And I was trying to point out that uh, what we needed was a strategy that united people. I said that however you voted in the referendum in 2016, 
if you're in insecure private rented accommodation and in receipt of universal credit, you're up against it, however you voted. It was trying to build that sort of sense of class solidarity. Um, and in the end, Johnson gave all these um, instant answers. And I just remember very clearly in the TV debate before the general election, I produced the, um, the documents which showed in terms that the government was in secret negotiations with the US on uh, uh, privatizing our health service and handing out to global corporations. He just poo-pooed it and said, it's not happening. And then said, we'll get Brexit done. I said, well, two things. One is it is happening. And secondly, you won't because you haven't thought through what the implications of getting Brexit done actually means um the media instead of picking up on what i thought was a very important point about the health service and even dominic cummings came out this week and said that corbyn was on for something there and we were really worried about it instead they claimed it was all a russian plot to undermine britain i mean i'm still really struggling as to what possible interest that the Russians have got in negotiations between Britain and the USA in secret about them trying to undermine our NHS. The issue was the NHS and is the NHS. Do you know, something that you, you touched on there was the, the hostility from the media. And I, we spoke about this previously when, when you were up in Scotland. And for me, I, I think this must take a, a severe, you know, it must take its toll on, on your mental health. And you continued to do your job, you continued to, you know, go out and, and face adversity and, and stand up in Parliament and, and say what you believe in, but there must have been a time where you're thinking, this is torture, this is really, really hard for not only you, but for your wife and your, your boys as well, you know? I Absolutely, thanks for saying that, because yes, for me, of course, there's pressure and of course there's stress, but um, the stress is different for different people. And real stress is when you can't feed your kids. Real stress is when you're a, a nurse, a triage nurse in a hospital and you haven't got enough beds to put your patients in. That's real stress. Real stress is losing your job. Real stress is watching your kids go through mental health and poverty. Real stress is homelessness. But the other toll of it is the effect it has on other people. I mean, I if people attack me, so... Okay, I don't know. You know say what they want. I know what I believe in. I know what I want to do, and I know what I'm doing. Um, but it's very hard for family. Very hard for my wife, who suffered a lot in all this. But she's very strong and very determined, and she's politically extremely active herself all the time. My sons also suffered a lot in this because they felt very hurt by a lot of what was going on, but remained incredibly supportive all the way through. And they put that most lovely message about me on Facebook the day after the 2019 election, which is something, as far as one can ever treasure anything from Facebook, I will treasure always. But, you know, I, I think that was really poignant as well, and, and it must be touching. And I suppose, you know, you, you can get all these votes from your constituency and uh, from the people that you represent, but I think ultimately the, the one people, or the, the people in your life that you want to get acceptance from is probably your children. Yes, indeed, indeed, and they are. I'm very close to them, and uh, we talk all the time. They're good boys. <laughs> You've brought them up to be Arsenal fans as well, I believe. Well, yes, yes. The uh, uh, three of the three of them. Ben 
He runs a football school himself, is very keen on football and used to work for Arsenal in the community and now works uh, on his own, but he has very close links with Arsenal in the community. Seb, who used to work for John McDonnell, is also an Arsenal supporter. Tommy, the youngest one, who runs his own company, the National Hemp Service, can't stand football. It's nothing <laughs> to do with football or watch football. Indeed, I took him to a match once at the old Highbury. I thought, come on, come on, come, enjoy the match. So he's sitting there sort of playing on something or other. And then I didn't realise he kind of walked off. <laughs> he, just, he went off somewhere, I don't know, just wandering around. He, and he said it was he wanted nothing to do with it. But, you know, there we are. But at least he's not supporting somebody else. <laughs> That's it. It could, it could be a Spurs fan. That would, that would be a disaster. Yeah. Well, that would, be, that would be very, very hard to cope with. But last night, Arsenal had a... Not a great night out. And I live, as I was saying to you before, I live near the stadium. I, I didn't go to the match last night, but I couldn't have got there at the beginning. So um, I'm walking home from the meeting I'd been at. This is sort of towards the end of the first half. And I live very near the stadium. You can hear the stadium from my house. They call it Library the Library. <laughs> Silence. So I realised all was not well. How, how does it compare, you know, living well, in North London? And how, how does the Emirates compare to the, the old Highbury? Because for me, I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist and I've got this romantic vision of older, you know, football where it's the, the terracing and, you know, everyone's singing in unison. But I feel now it's quite sanitised, you know, these big stadiums and the prices, you, you know yourself, it, it really cripples the, the working class and prices young people out of football as well. If, if you're a student, how are you ever affording to go to a Premier League game, you know? The old library, which is still there, but now a, um, a housing development, but the stands have been retained, the east stand, the west stand. There's developments around it, and there's a public right of way through it, which um, was something I supported in the planning process. And I cycle through there quite often. But the sad thing is, what was the pitch is now a sort of combination of garden and water garden and little bits of patch of lawn with glass partitions between them and there's a big side up saying no ball games <laughs> you're joking on the old pitches wow and then but the new stadium yeah i go there you do get a great view of the pitch and all that from wherever you happen to sit and that's good and it's big and all that but the atmosphere just isn't there the old Highbury, I used to sit in the Lower East Stand with my boys, the two of them, um, right next to the pitch. So when Ian Wright come up to take a corner or something, he's like as far away from me as you are with the screen there. And you just felt part of the game. And now you're so far back, you know, you sort of wonder if you should take binoculars or not to see the far side of the pitch. It's, it's not the same atmosphere and it feels quite sanitised and corporate, as many of these things do. And you're quite right, it's working-class communities being driven away. I mean, the cost of tickets is phenomenal. The cost of refreshments that goes with it are phenomenal. And the lack of democracy in football, it's got to change. It's got to change, otherwise we're killing the game that so many people absolutely love. Now, I mean, I, I like the game of football, and I think the young people playing football it teaches them a lot of things, fitness, obviously, but above all, it teaches them understanding of each other and the sad realisation that no one player can actually win a game. It requires 11, or in the case of Arsenal, usually 10 because somebody gets sent off. Um, and so 
it, it does require that understanding of the mentality of working with other people to the best of their skills. So the, and I, I listened to, you know, my son and his sort of coaching methods with his um, with his young people. He manages various um, teams that go with his son. And his approach is always to be positive with every player. Now, I went to a match, his team, one of his teams was playing in Cambridge and Honestly, they were doing really badly. They were like three nil down at the time, and that was a generous, generous score where they were concerned. So he said, "Do you want to come to the half-time talk?" And I said, "Not really." He said, "No, no, just come and listen." And so what he did was sat them all down in the fifteen minutes they've got, and went through each player's performance. And instead of telling them off and this. He found something positive each had done during the first half. In some cases, it was quite hard to find, but he did find something. <laughs> he said, look, 25th minute, you did a good pass, whatever, that kind of thing. And they came out not feeling dejected as they went in, and they played much better in the end of the draw. So, you know what I mean? It is looking at the positives in people. Particularly, you don't want to depress young people. If you had to have a... A Westminster five. You know, <laughs> if you if you had to have a Westminster five aside team, who, who would you pick, and, and how would you find positives in them? Oh, a Westminster five aside team. Well, would it be um, gender balanced or gender neutral or a men's team or a women's no, team? No, absolutely, yeah, gender gender neutral is totally fine. Hmm. Well, we've got some <clears throat> very good. Um, elected Labour MPs that seem look pretty fit to me. We've also got some older ones that have um, been in sport a long time. Um, I did go to a parliamentary match once that was played at Highbury where John Burko played <laughs> on the Highbury pitch and he was so excited about that, to have his shirt on and be out there. Uh, I would, I'd pick, actually, I don't know if she'd want to do it, but Zara Sultana, she seems, she's young and very fit and very enthusiastic. I think she'd be really good. So uh, she's one I'd pick. Um, one or two of the Liberals look a bit handy to me and quite fit, so they'll be running around. Sadly, there's quite a lot of MPs that look very fit to me and spend a bit too much time eating and drinking when they should be out doing a bit more exercise. So um, when we used to have parliamentary matches before COVID, there was a, Steve Rotherham and Andy Burnham were very, very keen on football. They used to play in this parliamentary side but they there was some weird rule that all the players didn't have to be mps and so steve rotherham recruited my son ben to play for the parliamentary eleven <laughs> so he, he i said well how come he's uh, he's not an mp he said yeah but he's related to one it's all right <laughs> so, ben you know, it was fun football is a great thing to do absolutely absolutely and i mean t- talk talking about Who'd you pick Scottish Parliament, anyway. Oh, who would I pick from the Scottish Parliament? I think it's interesting. You, you've always got, in, in my opinion, Anis Sarwar and, and even Sir Keir, if you want to call him that, posing in football pitches, <laughs> trying, trying to connect with the working class. Uh, who do you think would, would be the best player? Do, do you know the, the SM? Paul would be good. Glasgow, he'd be good, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. Paul would be. Paul would be all right. Uh, who else would be decent? He looks he look pretty fit, doesn't he? Yeah, he's all right. He's all right. Uh, 
I, listen, I actually think Scottish Labour would get would get an all right five five sides team. Uh, Neil Finlay could he play football? What's that? Neil Finlay could he play football? Yeah, he probably could. I <laughs> he's all right. Do you know uh, we we were talking about fan ownership the the last time you were here? You know, and I, I think that's yeah. in a previous Labour manifesto. That's something that that you pushed as well. For me, community ownership really is the the way forward for for many many clubs. It's you know football is the the life and soul of communities, and a lot of the time, certainly where I'm from in Motherwell, you know the biggest employer in the town, unfortunately now, is is the football club, and I believe that football clubs should be sustained and, and owned by the people that care the most about them. But I often wonder, you know, how how would that translate? For example, you look at a, a club like Liverpool, who are really ingrained in their community. You know, I think the, the city of Liverpool and their socialist values almost seep through into the, the football stadium as well. But then if, you, if you're wanting that success on a, on a global scale, can, can you avoid the capitalism and the, the big money that comes with it? Well, that's the hard part. I mean, Bayern Munich is always presented as the most um, democratic club and so is Barcelona. But um, in reality, they get a lot from sponsorship. In reality, they get involved in all of that, either through sponsorship of the stadia or the financial arrangements. And Barcelona is also, whilst he's not doing that well this season compared to their normal performance, uh, is massively, massively in debt. And it's, um, if Barcelona is as important to Barcelona as Liverpool is to Liverpool, then you can sort of see the depression that would come over the city if Barcelona collapse as a club or if i mean obviously hope it doesn't happen or if liverpool or something like that so ownership i think you have to start with the democratic argument that you and i pay our money in order to um, support our club and enjoy football and arsenal are good in the sense of Arsenal and the community. They do some very good stuff and they support freedom from torture, football mat campaigns, and they provide sports facilities of all kinds of sport, tennis and other things as well at the stuff they do. But in reality, they're owned by some very wealthy people who put money into Arsenal in order to buy and sell players. And the fans have no say in it whatsoever. So I think you have to start with two things. One is the Premier League in England is a mega rich, mega successful league. But the, the amount of money it's sucking out of the championship, the lower leagues and amateur football, to some extent the same in Scotland, means that grassroots football dies and the footballers of tomorrow are not necessarily growing up um, now. The, they're coming from everywhere else. It's no bad thing, but you want to see more footballers developing. And so what I wanted to do was start with a <clears throat> substantial subvention from the Premier League clubs in order to invest in the wider aspects of football and have an increasing law over years where the number of directors elected by the fans increases. Now, they're going to be a, a fan-elected director is going to be in a very difficult position because they're going to be under lots of pressure from fans, all of whom are very good at selecting last week's team. Yep. You know, very effective at that. But um, they do do need to um, make sure that uh, that democracy actually works in some way. And that is uh, 
what I would want to see, and also democratic ownership of the club, whereas, say, 50% of the shares are owned by the fans, things like that. So you gradually increase the fan involvement. Because quite often fans just feel they're taken for granted and ignored. Yeah. And that they feel that sense of isolation. And you're, I mean, football is a business. Yes, I get that. But it's also so important to community. Take Motherwell. Um, steelworks gone, mining industry gone, hasn't been replaced by uh, equivalent types of manufacturing industry at all. Um, and so it's either commuting small businesses. And as you say, Motherwell has now become the largest employer in the town. And so football can be a major force for good, a major force for good in the community, major inspiration for kids. And footballers themselves can be uh, an amazing sense of inspiration. I just digress slightly. Um, I've never forgotten taking um, a group of kids who had not been doing very well at school, not been behaving very well, but they'd been sent to Arsenal Double Club in order to improve their maths and English, which was a good thing. And those that had been through the maths and English uh, supplementary course were then given an evening at the stadium with an Arsenal player. And I went with this group of kids and um, Patrick Vieira was the Arsenal player. And he was wonderful. He sat down and he stayed much longer than he was supposed to have done, answered every question, and he said, he just looked to them all and said, look, in front of you, you see a footballer and you see somebody in a club that's doing well. I grew up in a very, very poor community. I grew up in a very, very poor village. And uh, I want for every kid in the village what I've got. I want that education. And so I said, learn and study your education. And then another one of these events, Arsene Wenger came and described how he learned English, which apparently was by getting a bedsit in Cambridge and listening to people in cafes. <laughs> a, a very strange way of doing things. But he then went on to say how learning languages brings about a peaceful world because he said, you don't just learn a language, you learn a culture that goes with it. And he's somebody that speaks eight languages. And so, and obviously... If, I'd, if you or I had gone in front of these kids and said, you've all got to learn a language, you'll understand the world better, they go, oh, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. It's the role models. Because isn't? it was after yeah. Wenger's death, they were, they were just, you could hear a pin drop as he, as he was speaking, and they listened to him, likewise listening to Patrick Vieira. So football can be a great inspiration, can be a great unifier. And uh, I had a great evening with the um, uh, Newcastle fans that, the Tune Aid, as they call themselves, raising money for refugees and others, raising money for aid, raising money for food banks. The work that the Liverpool and, and Everton fans, to be fair, do for the food banks is incredible. And so that sort of sense of community that goes with football is a very important thing. And uh, But unless we reduce the ticket prices, who's ever going to be able to afford to go to big games. I mean, when, it, when you're talking 40, 50 quid for a ticket, who can afford that? You can't, a family of four cannot go to a match where they're spending 200 quid. Yes, it, it's ridiculous. And, and you, you hit the nail on the head. I think that football clubs and, and more so football players as well, they, they don't realise the influence and the power they have, you know, to really, really shape communities for the better. I just wonder, uh, Jeremy, who was, who was asking more questions when it was Vieira and, and Wenger were there? I hope you let the, the kids get some some questions in and you weren't hogging the mic. 
Yeah, I um, I got to know Wenger uh, quite well, and uh, I thought he is a very interesting, very well informed, very very intelligent guy. And um, he, I was very sorry when he um, when he left Arsenal. I think he's very sorry as well. Yeah, it was it was really sad well, the way it turned out, wasn't it? Because he, he he was ultimately, you know, a invincible league winning manager. You're totally, you know, held in high high esteem. And I don't know from the outside looking in, it, it looked like it almost ran its course. But neither side, be that Arsenal or, or the club, wanted to part ways. You know, it was it was too much to take to to leave. Well, he was the only one to have a bust of himself put up in the club while he was still manager. Most clubs leave that until there's a very safe distance between the departure of the manager and that. And um, yes, he did build the Invincibles team and he did it by by fitness, by diet and by um, total concentration. Um, had it run its course? Well... And they went through the cost of building the new stadium and all the disruptions and that, and they still managed to always qualify for the Champions League throughout all that period. And so it was some achievement. But Arsenal qualified for the Champions League for more than 20 years, every successive year, which was, I don't think anybody else has done that. Well, maybe, one, I don't know, possibly others, but I mean, it was an amazing achievement. We we spoke about you know from from Keir Hardy to James Conley to to Arsene Wenger and Patrick Vieira and you know it's it's two sides of it. I feel that that politics really takes up a lot of your energy and a lot of your time and, and football is probably where you're able to to let off some steam. What, what else do you do to relax? Because I, I know that you are a man that is constantly on the go. Um, well, I I like to read different things. And so at the moment, I'm reading a book um, called uh, About the Life of Toussaint Louverture, who led the um, anti-slave movement and independence movement in the Haiti in the late uh, 18th, early 19th century, eventually was uh, died in a prison in France. Um, incredible self-educated person who... Um, uh, was made a massive contribution to history um, and ended slavery in Haiti, albeit Haiti suffered terrible economic consequences because of the way France behaved towards Haiti. I'm reading that. I also have an allotment which I look after, and I was there last Sunday. I must say it was pretty cold, but there you go. Um, and I go uh, every week to that and we grow a lot of stuff there and fruit and vegetables and things and jam from it. And so I do all of that and I make sure I'm fit. So I do quite a lot of exercise and I enjoy um, making things when I get the chance. And so it's also what I enjoy is actually the variety of meeting people in different places, in different circumstances. So my, my boys and my wife sort of totally fed up with going anywhere with me because that you always end up in lengthy conversations with people you've never met before. Well, some of the wisest people are also sometimes very shy and they just sort of say kind of very politely hello kind of thing. And then you get into a conversation with them, you learn so much about people and their lives. And so I, um, I don't worry about things. I do 
work hard, of course, do everything I can for my constituents and all the other causes we're involved in and the project. Um, and then make sure you have some time to think about things yourself as well. Um, and that, that is important. You have to have a balance in life. Uh, otherwise, um, you don't really achieve very well at anything. Uh, uh, so, uh, it, is, uh, it is sport as well. Enjoy. It's a it's a, a Friday when we're recording this, Jeremy. So we won't won't go too deep. But what's your thoughts on the the current Westminster shit show? To be polite, and and where do you think that we go from here? Well, you're being very polite about it all. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Johnson clearly um, did a whole lot of stuff that was wrong in the sense that he had set regulations quite strict ones, which he then promptly broke himself and knowingly broke himself. And he's going to have to answer for that. And next week, maybe there'll be big movements. Maybe he'll resign. Maybe he won't. I, I don't know. Um, but what I find annoying about it is that he is under massive pressure for this breach of rules and the honesty that goes with it. And to some extent, that's absolutely right. What he ought to be under pressure for is £35 billion being spent on a failed track and trace system. What he should be under pressure for is all the dodgy contracts that were let at the NHS. What he should be under pressure for is the massive yawning gap between the richest and the poorest that has got wider during COVID. So those are the things I feel very strongly about and very annoyed about. And Parliament often gets obsessed with its own self-importance and talking to each other rather than thinking how it looks anywhere else and, and outside. And so, um, I mean, people kind of enjoy the, the show of it all and all the gossip and so on that goes with it, which the media are full of. But then and there's somebody said to me yesterday in the street, he said, well, Jeremy, this has got nothing to do with me. I don't recognise any of this. I'm not interested in it. I'm having trouble paying the rent. Yeah. You know, so um, democracy has to be relevant and MPs have to be accountable. How, how long do you think you'll, you'll stay in politics? Not that, not that I'm trying to force you out the door. I hope you're here for many, many more oh, years to come. Listen, my life is my work. My work is my life. So I'll, I'll be around always. It's a good answer. Retiring to spend more time on politics. I'm just spending time on politics. <laughs> what are you up to this weekend then? What, what, what have you got on the cards? This weekend, um, quite a lot of work at home writing, some um, local visits in the constituency, um, and also visiting my son's football club. And of course, um, there's um, some work to do on the allotment. It's the time for a little bit of light digging and, and manuring the ground ready for the summer. Do you so pull it's, it's going to be a pretty full on weekend and uh, it looks like it's going to be cold and dry. And you know what? I like a day in winter when it's dry and cold and you're out and about. It's great. And um, there are many, many occasions when I wished I lived in Scotland because I'd be straight up into the Highlands. <laughs> Bagging Monroe. I, I, I love it. I love the scenery, particularly north of Glasgow. You know, when you go up there towards, go up towards Perth and up to Aberdeen, Inverness, fantastic. Okay, so it's, really, a, it's really, a nice drive up there. To be I fair. guess in Scotland you're kind of used to it all, but to me, every time 
I go up, up the um, up the A9 or on the railway up there. The scenery just bowls me over. That's that's, that's cycle route. That's the thing. Other day. You, you, you could cycling up the Grand Canal. You, you could retire Canada. and get a little, little house up in the north of Scotland, but you're you're not for giving up. No, 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 no. What, you reckon you could get me one? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Do you, will you pull the boots on when you go to visit your son's football? Um, I sometimes do a bit of penalty shootout at the end of, at the end of the event, but I try to do the shooting rather than the goalkeeper because it's too embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Jeremy, it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you again. Thanks so much for, for your time today and, and hopefully we'll catch up again in the, in the near future in person. Thanks very much. And I look forward to coming to see you again and particularly Motherwell. And well done, all those that have got involved in the democracy movement in Motherwell, Kilmarnock and other clubs, because that's the way forward. And um, I've got an invite to go and see Kilmarnock play as well. So I'll take them up on that. Oh, I and yourself, know. you invite. I don't, I don't know about Kilmarnock. That's, that's torture. That, that, that's brutal. <laughs> Uh, thanks ever so much it's been great great talking to you listen it's been a pleasure thank you